the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And if he's uh, anything like you, he's a guy trying to figure out what's going on in Iowa. Good afternoon and welcome. Great to have you on board the Tuesday edition of Lifeline for this um Tuesday edition. What can I say? It is, of course, a Tuesday. You probably took note of that. And that means tonight, coming up at 6 p.m., is the third State of the Union to be delivered by President Trump. Tonight, in that State of the Union, he will address, of course, a joint session of Congress. It will be a somewhat awkward address, perhaps, as it will be the first opportunity this president will have a chance to address face-to-face the House Democrats who impeached him and the senators who will soon vote on whether or not to end his presidency. It indeed could be an awkward State of the Union address. The senators are expected to vote to acquit President Trump late tomorrow afternoon. Some presidents have asked him, some Republicans rather, have asked him to avoid talking about the impeachment during the State of the Union speech. He will instead headline accomplishments over the past three years, including new trade deals and the economy. We'll get complete and live coverage to you of the President's State of the Union address beginning at 6 p.m. Pacific time right here on KFAX. Well, as I mentioned at the get-go, some of this being overshadowed by ongoing and yet still not clear confusion related to the Iowa caucuses, as the head of the Iowa Democrat Party is now apologizing for the mess in calculating uh, the results. The reporting of the results and circumstances surrounding the 2020 Iowa Democratic uh, Party caucuses were unacceptable. As chair of the party... I apologize deeply for this. We also have a paper trail and documentation that will that have been able to use uh, to provide information to help verify the results. The bottom line is that we hit a stumbling block on the back end of the reporting of the data. But the one thing I want you to know, we know this data is accurate. Uh, perhaps there's an even bigger bottom line that is, is being ignored for the moment. And to put this in perspective, it's 2020. We sent a man to the moon multiple times since 1969, and yet 51 years later, we still struggle to count votes, seeing chaos and even times of examples of voter suppression, for example, in Wisconsin. And here, the Iowa caucus's inability to count who stands where in a high school gym filled with 150 people. How is this possible? Well, let's get some insights as to this entire caucus process. And this is the first of several more to come, uh, the next one of which will be in Nevada coming up on the 22nd. With some insights, we're joined by Neil Simon. He is a former candidate for Maryland U.S. Senate seat, the author of a new book, Contract to Unite America, 10 Reforms to Reclaim Our Republic. 
Mr. Simon and his family were recognized by Interfaith Works, a leading nonprofit organization that helps low-income families, as Humanitarians of the Year in 2016. He recently penned an op-ed in USA Today entitled, Voters Need More Third-Party Options, Americans Should Demand It. And Neil, great to have you on the program. It's great to be with you, Craig. First, your response. I mean, again, this this always sort of strikes a chord of, I think, of, of fear as we look at the challenges and getting accurate and uh, quick tabulations last night. Uh, granted, um, Iowa's got 1,600 precincts, but we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of millions of votes here. And then you talk about larger states like California, and you think, gee, if we can't trust the results of the Iowa caucuses to come in on time and correct – how much of a risk is any other election in the union? Is this a product of just an outmoded, outdated methodology of, of choosing primary candidates? Well, it's a really disappointing process. I think the last thing our country needs right now is something to make people question the legitimacy of our elections. We've got enough tension and polarization on our own without faulty mechanics in our electoral system. So most people don't know, until 1968, Almost all of our primaries were conducted through caucuses, like the one that we still have in Iowa. Through the 70s, most states adopted direct primaries, but a small number held on to the caucuses. And the reason they did is because in races where you have multiple candidates, caucuses enable voters who support one of the the tertiary candidates to shift their support through the process to one of the the leading candidates. And so you end up with more people supporting the eventual winner. But it was a debacle. It's an outdated process. One of the uh, reforms that I advocate for in my book, Contract Unite America, is called Ranked Choice Voting, which would be a much simpler, instantaneous, transparent way to do the same thing. And it's also private, where caucusing is a very public activity, where you literally are in a gym, like you described, Craig. So it's it's antiquated, and I think it's probably time for for Iowa to move on. And, and certainly, as we look at this from sort of the the thirty thousand foot high viewpoint here, I mean, this is not the first time that there have been challenges and inconsistencies. I mean, my goodness, we had it going all the way back to the the Gore Bush years when we remember like the hanging chads and the election night that that just went on, and I think. Even here, we stopped reporting at about 3 o'clock in the morning, California time, uh, almost eight hours after the polls had closed because there was just simply no clear winner. And as we know, eventually uh, that race had to be decided by the United States Supreme Court. It just fundamentally, Neil, to me, again, as I kind of tongue-in-cheek say, in a modern age, we can send man to the moon multiple times, invent computers, and do all of these wonderful things, and yet we, we can't get an accurate head count that we know won't be tampered with, that will not be somehow manipulated in favor of one party or another, so that by the time a winner is declared, it's clear-cut, and the American people are 100% confident that they, and not a fluke or an error of some sort or manipulation by a third-party character, including maybe even another country, have somehow tainted the election results. It's, it's disappointing, and we all want exactly what you described. We want a process that we have confidence in that's accurate, that's unpenetrable by whether it's domestic players or foreign players. 
And unfortunately, a lot of the election security legislation became partisan legislation um, a few months ago. But but there was some money allocated by Congress for election security, and hopefully it'll be implemented well. I, I think the bigger problem in our election system is, I think, the incentive structure overall that pushes candidates to the two bases. Uh, basically, all our candidates and lawmakers today have every incentive to appeal to the far-right base or the far-left base, and they really have almost no incentive anymore to, to work together, to collaborate, to try to get things done for the American people. And unfortunately, I think that's the environment in which election security is being dealt with. So I think the fundamental issue is really the incentive structure in our political system. And that's what I found when I was running for office myself a couple of years ago. You mentioned the notion of rank choice voting or or at least open primaries and, and the notion here that uh, everybody has a chance to participate across the board. And, of course, there have been experiments with that even here in California. We've gone that way and come back in the opposite direction on at least one occasion. There are some states that, that embrace the notion of open primaries and other states that have said, no, no, you in the primaries must vote for whatever candidate within your party. What are the, the pluses and the minuses between the two potential options here, and, and why do you favor the notion of moving to open primaries across the country? So the first thing you have to do is define what you mean by open primaries. In California, where your viewers are, your listeners are, you have what's called a blanket primary or a jungle primary, where everybody participates in one primary, regardless of what party you identify with and regardless of who you want to vote for. You're one of only two states with that type of primary. There are 30 states in this country that have open primaries defined in a different way. What what it means in those 30 states is that you show up on election day, the state has no idea what party you affiliate with, they do not keep track of your registration, and they say, which ballot would you like, sir? And you say, I'd like a Republican ballot, a Democratic ballot, or maybe even Green Party, Libertarian. They give you that ballot, and you can vote in any primary you want. To me, that's a fair system, because we all pay for those elections. We pay for that to be administered. That's our tax dollars administering those elections. So everyone should be allowed to vote in those primaries. I happen to be an independent. In my state, in Maryland, we're one of 20 states with closed primaries. And in fact, we're one of only nine that have completely closed primaries, which means that you have to pre-register weeks in advance with the party in order to be allowed to participate in that election. And my county is similar to a lot of places in California. It's very heavily Democrat. So the only election that really matters in most of the races here is the Democratic primary, but I'm not allowed to vote in it. Now, people might say, Neil, just register as a Democrat, but I'm not a Democrat. I don't identify with a lot of the policies of the Democrats, and I don't want to register as a Democrat, and I don't think I should have to in order to participate in what is the most important election in my jurisdiction. So that's what I mean by open primaries. I think that for all elections where taxpayer dollars are being spent, we all should be allowed to vote in them. And, you know, there's another issue here, and I want to dive into this, Neil, when we come back after the break a bit deeper, and that is, and you've kind of hinted at this, there are inconsistencies at the state level for this very important federal office. So how the primary candidates are chosen in one state, like Iowa versus California versus Wyoming versus Nevada versus Florida, 
different from state to state. We know that certainly states set the rules. They have the right to do so. But is it exactly and necessarily the best idea, particularly from the perspective of the fact that a lot of this has the potential, and we've seen this in cases of Florida, has the potential for impacting the highest elected office in the land? So is it time to talk about some sort of consistency when it comes to federal election laws. We'll talk about that. Our conversation, Neil Simon, continues. He is a former candidate for the U.S. Senate seat in Maryland and the author of a new book called Contract to Unite America, 10 Reforms to Reclaim Our Republic. We take this time out, come back with more as Lifeline continues. All right, 516, let's head over to the KFAX Traffic Center and get you an update on traffic this Tuesday. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, so some early numbers. This is with 62.9% of the precincts reporting. So that's approximately 1,111 out of the 1,765 all told across the state. And this is as of just 20 minutes ago. Uh, right now pulling in 27% of the vote, Pete Buttigieg. Second place, Bernie Sanders, 25.1%. Third place, Elizabeth Warren with 18.3%. Joe Biden clocking in at just 15.6%. And Amy Klobuchar taking 12.6% of the vote. They're the top five candidates. And uh, wow, uh, not quite what anybody perhaps would have expected. And if... The president was thinking he was going to be going up against Joe Biden um, come the general election. Um, you know, you can't put everything on Iowa, but this is certainly very telling. Neil Simon is with us today, former candidate for the U.S. Senate seat in Maryland, author of a new book called Contract to Unite America, 10 Reforms to Reclaim Our Republic, just newly released by Real Clear Publishing. And, Neil, let's talk about, you know, we, we've addressed some of the inconsistencies, and I think what's problematic, perhaps, is that uh, it varies so much from state to state. I have to wonder, for a federal office, um, how could we go about bringing a sense of uniform voting and regulations in every single state in the union to help instill a tremendous or a greater sense of confidence so that when people go to the polls and vote in the primary in their state, as much as when they go to the polls and vote in the general election, that they know that their vote is actually being counted. Well, we need to invest in election security, and I think we've started that process. It needs to be bipartisan. There's absolutely no reason why the security and effectiveness of our electoral system should be a partisan issue, which at times it has become a partisan issue. This has got to be something where our Republicans and Democrats can come together and work on together. Um, Part of the issue in our political system is not just the security and efficiency of the actual elections, but the fact that the primaries themselves have become the election of importance in so many races. So 90% of House races and 70% of Senate races are uncompetitive in the general election. So the only important election is the primaries. If you're in a locked Democratic district, the general is not very important to you. It's the Democratic primary, for example, that's important. That's how, by the way, 
you had a moderate Democratic congressman named Joe Crowley, who was pretty high up in the Democratic hierarchy in the House, run last cycle in, um, he had been in for 12 years, and in his primary, he faced a unknown 28-year-old, very liberal contestant in the primary, and she ended up getting only 16,000 votes, which was enough to beat him. And that's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who won with less than 5% of the registered voters in her district. But because of the way our primaries work, that was the whole election. And then now you get to the general election, and she's a, a shoo-in. So we, 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 we do need to, to fix our primaries. And one of the solutions is what, Craig, you and I were talking about before, opening them up so that independents and other people can vote in whatever primary they want in each jurisdiction. What about pushback from the parties themselves? And we know certainly this really hit the forefront back, oh my goodness, more than 20 years ago when Ross Perot first made a bid for the presidency. And while certainly there have been presidential candidates for every makeup of party in the country, Communist, Green Party, you name it, they've run a candidate, that was the first real election that saw an impact and suggested that votes were being drained off um, of one of the two primary parties, and that's happened at least twice. Um, that being the case, how difficult would it be to get support by both the Republican and Democrat Party to, to be open to the notion of open primaries? So 30 states already have open primaries, and in the other 20, it's really dependent on the parties themselves within each of those states to make that decision. So, for example, in my state of Maryland, it would be up to the Democratic Central Committee and the Republican Central Committee to open up their primaries to independent voters, potentially even open them up statewide. Um, and that's, that's really what we need to happen, because you can understand how in the, when you have closed primaries, you really end up with only the most liberal Democrats voting in that par- primary and only the most conservative Republicans voting in the other one. And it's part of why we end up with such a divided government and such polarizing leaders. Uh, too late to see anything like this implemented, certainly for uh, this election year. What are your thoughts? How do we keep this sort of uh, front burner, given the fact that we go, then go into this three-year lag time between elections before people really start focusing on this issue again? Right. So open primary is only one of the ten reforms in my book. Um, and I think what we need right now is... You know, I wrote the book for Americans who are tired of this red versus blue warfare, who think that we deserve a government that can work together to get things done on our behalf, who understand that we deserve a Congress with a higher than 14% approval rating. For Americans who, the 83% of Americans who are in favor of term limits because they're so fed up with what we've got today. My book is not for the small percentage of the country, 6% that identifies as devoted conservatives or the small percentage, the 8% that identify as progressive activists. It's for everybody else who thinks we deserve better than what we've got. And I think what we need if we want to change that incentive structure is a set of reforms that includes open primaries, it includes campaign finance reform, term limits, ranked choice voting that we talked about before, and a few others that collectively change the incentive structure. Because the problem now is that if you're a rational person and you're running for office or running for re-election, the only thing you care about is the base of your party. You have no reason to 
work with anyone across the aisle. Your only motivation is to appease the, the visceral desires of the base of your party, and it's, it's really tearing us apart and getting us nowhere. Yeah, no doubt about that. And, you know, the sense of consternation that has crept into the elections uh, and, and how acrimonious all of this has become, um, particularly when you see such narrow margins and, and it opens up, you know, I mean, it, it feels like a replay for San Franciscans of the 49ers-Kansas City game last Sunday. And that is, oh, we think that there were inappropriate calls by the referee and, you know, this should have changed, that should have changed, the score was so close. And you, and you walk away with no sense of a mandate. And I think to a degree, psychologically, that has an impact on Americans. It does. And Sadly, the legislation that's coming out of Washington, there was a great study done by some professors at Northwestern and at Princeton, and they concluded that over the last 20 years, legislation has had zero positive impact on your average American. But who it does impact positively are the special interests that fund a lot of political campaigns. And what we have instead is a Congress that is destroying the institution. So where we used to, 50 years ago, you had major legislation passed on a bipartisan basis. The Civil Rights Act was a bipartisan piece of legislation. Um, as recently as under Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan, when Supreme Court justices were appointed, Anthony Kennedy was confirmed 96 to 3. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 97 to 0. Today, those are party-line votes. We saw that during the Kavanaugh hearings in 2018. Congressional investigatory committees have become, they used to be bipartisan collaborative efforts. Now they're partisan hunts for each other. And and the latest tragedy of Congress is impeachment. Um, Whatever you think about whether or not Trump should be in office or not, the impeachment process should not be a party-line vote. That is a destruction of a critical part of our brilliant Constitution, and I find it really sad. But, but it's all the byproduct of the incentive system that we have in, in politics today. There's no reason for any of these guys to do anything other than appease their base. They're afraid of appearing disloyal to their party, and so the result is little by little we're destroying our, our legislative branch of government. Well, time will certainly tell, um, but I think that you get strong agreement across the board on one thing, and that is we need to rethink some of this. And, and clearly, as the results or lack thereof from last night demonstrate, if Iowa can't count accurately and in a timely fashion the caucus vote, how can we expect a state like California or Florida or New York to get it right the first time? The book Contract to Unite America, 10 Reforms to Reclaim Our Republic, newly published by Real Clear Publishing, and its author has been our guest in this segment of Lifeline, Neil Simon, former candidate for the U.S. Senate seat in Maryland. Neil, thank you so much for the time and the insights. We appreciate you being with us tonight. All right, here at 531, we're going to get you updated on traffic in a moment. When we come back, uh, we're going to be joined by Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Coming your way tonight at 6 o'clock straight up, we will go live to Washington, D.C., for President Trump's third State of the Union address. We will carry that speech live and uninterrupted beginning at 6 p.m. right here on KFAX. 
Right now, uninterrupted, a look at traffic. Of course, it may be interrupting you. Let's find out what's going on from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the program. The State of the Union Address annually, and ironically, it wasn't until really the advent of radio that State of the Union Addresses were delivered more formally before a joint session of Congress before the nation. Prior to that, in the earliest days of the Republic, the president typed it out, and copies were printed, and then envelopes were delivered to all the members of the House and the Senate, and that was the State of the Union. Uh, technology has created an opportunity now for all of us to uh, to be in on how the president essentially looks at uh, the last 12 months of his presidency, sort of measures the pulse of where things are, and then sets out typically a proposal for the things that he would like to see done over the next 12 months, 11 months, 13 months, as the case may be, heading into perhaps the next election, a change in leadership or a continuation with re-election into a, a second term, should it be a president, as is the case of President Trump, who is facing an election year. There is debate tonight as to what will be discussed. Will he get into anything in relationship to the impeachment hearings and the Senate trial, which is due to have a final vote? on the subject of to remove or not as soon as tomorrow. Uh, Will that come up or will the president focus more on things like job creation, where the economy is, um, and, and undoubtedly talk accomplishments even as he talks about the things that he'd like to see accomplished in the next year? Let's get some insights on one arena where this president has engaged in some landmark actions and legislation as a president, and that is, of course, in the pro-life arena. Joining me now is the Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, Brian Johnston. And uh, let me mention, as we dive slightly into politics, that uh, Brian joins us in his official capacity as a John Q. Public or voting citizen and not in an official capacity on behalf of the National Right to Life Committee. Brian, I appreciate so much you taking time to be with us tonight. Greg, always glad to be involved. KFAX is excellent. Let's talk a bit yeah. about uh, accomplishments first. Uh, you know, we, we've certainly had in our memory uh, presidents who have taken a positive pro-life position. Uh, both Bush 41 and 43 did. Certainly Ronald Reagan, one of the first presidents since the um, 1973 Roe v. Wade decision to really speak out openly as the president against abortion on demand in our nation. But uh, perhaps, arguably, this president has seen more positive action happening in that direction, not least of which can be measured by positions that have been appointed for judicial positions. That's right. And I have to, I have to admit, he said it at the march. I was at the march for life. Uh, he is, again, everyone knows his personality is not that of a typical elected representative. He has not spent time in politics. He's spent time in other areas, and he has a personality that is untypical of the political realm, let's put it that way. But he is right, and he said he has been the most pro-life president in American history. And I've met several. I met with George W. Bush 
and we were very honored to be invited into the Oval Office. And as you know, in many policies, he was very, very good. He, too, appointed, attempted to appoint pro-life judges. But as you'll recall, because of the media at that time, judges were told to be very, very careful. And there's a change now because of the media. They're not being careful. Their ideology is unlimited abortion on demand, choice. You have to have choice in judges. And in point of fact, that's not in the Constitution. And it's very clear what we really need are judges who will uphold the Constitution as written and the laws of nature and nature's God as our founders had established. And that's what the right to life is built on, the self-evident truth that we are made by a creator. Beyond that, the, the founding fathers didn't get into a lot of theology, but they started there, that we didn't make ourselves, and the government didn't make us, but the government has a responsibility to protect the gift of life that God has given us. That's in our founding documents. So let me quickly go over, and, and I have to agree with this president, he has done more than the other president. Obviously, just be, being elected, he prevented... He prevented Hillary Clinton from being elected. Anyone who follows politics knows what a terrible situation we would be in had she been elected. But he's been faithful in appointing pro-life judges. And these are judges that are very clearly pro-life and were seen by the opposition kicked up. It isn't just the Supreme Court. It's 191 conservative judges through the circuit and district courts. And they are committed to upholding the Constitution. That's more than, than the previous presidents combined. President Trump, uh, previous five presidents combined, President Trump deprived the abortion industry of billions of dollars. And he signed legislation to permit states to fund Planned Parenthood out of the Title X family planning funds that they've been living off of. He also has, uh, issued an executive order to give states the option to withhold Medicaid and other federal money from organizations that perform abortions, including Planned Parenthood. Uh, you'll recall... At the time of the March for Life, he specifically made an announcement regarding California. Many people did not understand, and I saw where the pop media misrepresented what he did. But basically, here in California, we fund abortion with California state funds on an unlimited basis. There is no financial limit. If they ask for the funds, they get it. That's because of a court order going back to Rose Bird. But what happened, and people don't understand this, because of the vagaries of Obamacare, which is still here. People don't realize it's still here. Gavin Newsom and the California legislature has said, not only will the state fund abortions, but any private insurance company doing business in the state must also pay for abortions. And so we have situations where uh, Skyline Wesleyan Church, for example, down in San Diego, uh, Jim Garlow, I think you may be familiar with Pastor Garlow, who's a pastor there, said, we're not going to do this. We don't want our insurance funds paying for abortions. And they had to sue. The Obama That was during the Obama administration. The Obama administration held with forcing private insurance companies. Now understand what that means. This is not government funding. This is the draconian use of government power to force private individuals to pay for it with their money through their insurance company. And the insurance companies didn't want to do it. Well, that is what happened on this January 24th when this president said, I'm sorry, if the state of California is going to use 
Medicaid that way, then we're going to limit how you can spend other Medicaid money. You can't force private individuals to do this. It's a significant decision. We're going to know in 30 days. They have 30 days to decide that. But there's so many other factors. The president continues to make numerous appointments across the federal administration, all strong advocates. Obviously, folks who know Vice President Mike Spence, former governor of Indiana, strong pro-life individual. But especially in the federal government areas like Health and Human Services, there's quite a few Californians, by the way. You can't get a lot done in California, but those who know Senator Morlock's office from Southern California in Orange County, he's one of the last of the good guys. His office was almost entirely emptied out, and they've gone to Health and Human Services in uh, the federal government because that's where a lot of the abortion money comes and goes. And having good pro-life appointments there is very, very important. We have to understand that human beings, when you talk about human services, Human beings include babies in the womb, and it's been an ideology of death now that is, has superimposed itself on our culture that, that needs to be resisted and resisted hard. The president is pushing hard in the Senate right now to pass additional pro-life legislation, like the Pain Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, as well as the full removal of funding, the full funding from Planned Parenthood, and he's promised to sign both those bills. Obviously, right now, it's the Speaker that's holding up things in the uh, lower house. But if we can change that, that's up to us who we elect to Congress and determine who's the next Speaker. But this president has been truly extraordinary, as I said. And, and you know, Craig, that I was honored to contribute to Ronald Reagan's book on this when it came out again. Uh, Ronald Reagan is a hero. And I think both Bushes, in many ways, were excellent men. But in terms of the actual doing, breaking through. And, and there's an old story in classic storytelling about the Gordian knot, a knot that could not be untied. And when Alexander the Great was confronted with it, he knew that it was prophesied whoever could untie that knot would rule the world. So Alexander the Great, no one could do it. He took out his sword and cut through it. And in a sense, that's what we're seeing in this president. Other people have been stymied by political games, by the deceitfulness of media coverage. This president really is a doer on life. You may not like his personality, but I assure you, on the issues of life, this man has been extraordinary. And certainly, as you point out, we've seen everything from uh, reversal on Title X funding, which kind of seems to be the, the ping-pong ball between Republican and Democrat presidents. Uh, he also reversed the policy uh, that had been reversed by Barack Obama concerning um, U.S. funds going to perform abortions overseas, the so-called Mexico City policy. And then, as you point out, uh, the appointments of both Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Um, highly critical and um, dependent upon what happens in November, may see an opportunity to have a historic third appointment to the high court. So much to keep an eye on. We appreciate the time today, uh, Brian Johnson. Hey, Brian, off the line, give me a call tomorrow, would you? We can talk about a couple of details here. And um, Brian, of course, is Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. More information on the web about his great work and that great organization at nrlc.org. That's nrlc.org. 
Coming up on 548 here on this Tuesday edition of Lifeline, in uh, about uh, eight minutes or so as the crow flies, we're going to take you live to Washington, D.C., and we'll have complete coverage of the president's third State of the Union address from a joint session of the House and the Senate. That coming up at 6 p.m. right here on KFAX. Right now, let's get you a look at traffic. We'll head back over to the KFAX Traffic Center.